Well, thank you for being with us again this morning. We are in Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, it's the final chapter. And in a sense, we have, yeah, it's only taken us how many years, but we're finishing the book. And we won't, won't even finish today. Uh, but as we know, the, the book is about dealing with the, the separation from the temple and going with Christ instead of being caught up in the, the old law. And that they've got better covenant, they've got a better priesthood, they've got better promises, and they're being urged to continue in and grow in Christianity. But their culture is pulling them back. There is persecution within the Jewish culture. Uh, assuming this is written around 63 A.D., which is not a guarantee, but it's right within there, around 63 A.D., they're about 36 months away from the fall or the beginning of the Jewish wars with Rome and then the fall of Jerusalem by 70 A.D., so their culture is, in a sense, uh, in a very uh, time of, of turmoil. And if we go, if you talk about a seven-year period, you know, 63 A.D., if this was written, well, within seven years, their city is destroyed. And so they are in a, in a period of persecution, and things are going to intensify. I guess there's a little bit of insight into that for kind of our culture, as we see a culture wars within our own uh, culture that we live in. Uh, we begin now, chapter 13, the closing, but what is interesting here is he's going to have, the first thing he says is he's get, going to give a list of some Christian characters. In this midst of turmoil, what he's focused on is that they continue, uh, not just with their faith in Christ, that's kind of been what the first 12 chapters were about, continuing your faith in Christ. Now he's going to focus on uh, their, their Christian virtues. If we go through the first 11 chapters, it's about doctrine. Even chapter 11 is about faith. Not so much about character, but about faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. As we go through chapter 12, he starts talking more about some, you know, living the Christian way and a little bit about morality, uh, ethics. And now we come into some absolute uh, directions on the Christian life. And I think... What I would like to do at this point, because we're beginning chapter 13 so we don't lose context, is just read through chapter 13. I'm reading in the NIV. The notes have the English Standard Version. So very quickly, without comment, I will try to read through chapter 13 as we close the book. Chapter 13, verse 1. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, uh, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself selves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We'll try to get through those verses today. Verse 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching or teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. 
The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. Now right in those verses, just to make a comment, is you can see how they, they carried the sacrifices outside the city. They were disgraced. Jesus was sacrificed outside the city, yet he won the victory of salvation for us. Now we should embrace that very thing. It's very likely you yourself will be cast outside the city, cast outside the culture, and, and, and embrace that disgrace because it is now being welcomed into a heavenly city as you're rejected from this city. And so that's really the contents of that right there as he's building up for that, is if you, are, if you find yourself being rejected in this culture, uh, that's all right because that's exactly what should be the result. When you shine the light into the darkness, the darkness should drive you out. Now, again, that's not, we're not going to pursue that, but that is the result. Though Jesus, okay, through Jesus, verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. Now again, who is writing this? Uh, we don't know for sure. Some say Paul. I would suggest Barnabas, but again, that's not absolute. So whoever's writing this closing, there, here's some information on who's writing. This is them writing now on some personal issues. Pray for us, whoever they are. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. So they're going to be coming back to Jerusalem to visit. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. <laughs> I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released, most likely from prison. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. So he's, him and Timothy are going to be traveling together. Greet all the leaders and all God's people, those from Italy sends you their greeting. Grace be with you all. So the letter apparently is coming from Italy, from Rome. We could say Timothy has just been released from prison in Rome, and now Timothy's going to be, this person is waiting for Timothy to be released to bring, come back and visit them in Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that someday, but anyway, that's some interesting clues as to what is going on in the writer's, the life of the writer. It, it appears he's in, in Italy, it appears he's aware of Timothy's imprisonment, and he's kind of waiting for Timothy to be released so they can travel somewhere together. Uh, on your notes, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, these are the verses we're going to try to get through today. Uh, and I just write this, Hebrews begins like a thesis, but ends uh, in this chapter like a letter. This sounds very much like a letter uh, and has the format of a letter, but up until this point, he's been writing, he calls it 
a word of exhortation. It's a word of encouragement to stay with Christ, stay with the new covenant, and don't drift back into the old covenant. That would, that would be his encouragement. All the areas of the Christian life were slipping because their faith was failing. So if we would say uh, because they're drifting back to the covenant, certain areas that, that are produced by faith, produced by the Spirit of God, those areas of life, if it would be morality, may be slipping or their commitment to that life. Uh, the verses of chapter 13 move quickly through several important areas, and I'll identify them here in the next point right here. During this time, this is interesting because, again, like I said, during this time of it's around 63 A.D., uh, the wars will break out in 66 A.D. Jerusalem will fall totally by 70 A.D., so they are right here. They are during a time of persecution. The Jews are persecuting uh, the Christians, the believers, some of them are being mistreated. Some of them are being put in prison. And that's what this is going to be talking about, those that are in prison. They're talking about believers who are in prison. They're not uh, criminals in the sense of uh, uh, being uh, uh, against the law. They're more like cultural criminals. The culture has declared this lifestyle, this uh, living, this uh, attitude uh, to be criminal. And so it is at this point in 63 A.D., the culture that is persecuting them by 66 A.D., within 36 months, is, and they're all, they're, the, the war drums are beating. The war drums are beating right here. By 66 A.D., the war is going to break out. It's going to now break out with Rome. Uh, it should be a short war. Rome should just roll in and crush them. But it's going to take 48 months. It's going to take 48 years for Rome to mo move from Galilee all the way down and take Jerusalem. So it's going to be quite a while i mean it's they're not going to fall in, in other words they they are the jews are a substantial force militarily at 66 a.d interesting they are destroyed in 70 a.d by 132 they're able to revive and lead a second jewish war the bar Kokhba revolt in 132 so imagine a culture that is totally decimated their city is laid waste 30 plus, yeah, 30 plus 30 years within a generation and a half, they, they uh, takes Rome three years to defeat them again. And at that time, they make it illegal for Jews to go back into Rome or go back into Jerusalem. So, uh, I mean, we're talking about a fairly, you know, they've been preparing for this war since before the time of Christ. They've got weapons stashed. Uh, they wanted Jesus. Some wanted Jesus to you know, sound the trumpet and bring these weapons out, bring these trained soldiers like these, the zealots that were being trained and start marching on Rome. He says that's not, that's not his ministry. But anyway, that's, that's what we could go back and that's kind of one of the reasons the leaders were afraid of Jesus is they're afraid that he was going to cause a revolt against Rome and some of the leaders were in line with Rome, the Herodians, the, the Sadducees, and life was good for the elites because Rome and them were participating. Uh, and that's not what Jesus came for. He came to deliver us from Satan and sin, not from the Romans. But nonetheless, in 63 AD, they are the Jews that are believers are being persecuted by Christians or being persecuted by Jews that are non-believers in Jerusalem. Their culture is beating the wars, trying to get up enough nerve, enough momentum to start a war with Rome. Rome is, of course, pushing back, and eventually Rome's going to push back far enough that they're going to say, okay, that's too much, and it's going to encourage everybody to step across the line for war. Uh, in other words, they're, they're, you can be passive for a while because there's really no issue here. We're still living at peace. We're still living at peace. But there comes a time where people start pushing it, creating situations where it's like, okay, now it's gone too far. 
but it sometimes takes that elite group to push and push and push until finally it's like, okay, now, now, we, now we're in a situation where if we just stay back here and just continue to live at peace, work together, but there were some people that wanted a conflict and they kept pushing it and pushing it until Rome struck and they go, well, now what are you going to do? Look what they did. And now, now everyone's got to go to war because you can't, you can't come across that line. So that, that's, being, that's happening right here. But my point for saying all that is what this author is talking about is to these believers is uh, some very basic Christian values. And I just wrote them down there at the top, just in chapters one, verses 1 through 6. Love for the brotherhood of believers, hospitality, persecuted believers in prison and the mistreated to take care of them, marriage, sexual morality, stay free from the love of money, focus on being content, and stay trust God and stay faithful to God because he is going to take care of all these in everything you're in. He's going to take care of them. So those eight things, that's what he's talking about in verses 1 through 6 is love, hospitality, persecuted believers, marriage, sexual morality, stay away from the love of money, stay content, and continue to trust God in all these situations. Uh, So here we go. Chapter 13, verse 1, the the simple translation from the English Standard Version is, let brotherly love continue. Uh, Those are four words. If you look in the Greek right there, there's three words. Uh, It's ha, Philadelphia, meneto. And the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. So first of all, this word love is phila, we'll just say Philadelphia, okay, did I even spell that correctly, philo, we've got, here's the word for love right here, this is friendship love, and this is going to be important just as we introduce this, and this is brother, and we'll talk about that. This is not the word agape, I mean, the the word agape is a very important word, agape is based more on uh, the character of the person that is loving it's it's based on a covenant it's based on an agreement it's it's not an emotion agape love is not an emotional love uh, this is based on friendship this is not agape uh, we've got like in the english we've got that word love but in the greek there's five different words that are translated into love in the english uh uh, and, and this is, in fact, in the conversation with Jesus and Peter at the end of John, when Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. Even there you can see Jesus saying, do you agape me? And Peter comes back with, I phileo you. I, we're, we're friends. He says, do you agape me? We're friends. Of course I do. He says, do you? And they went back and forth. That's another interesting story. That even in the Greek, those two different, those, they're, they're using two different words in their conversation. Now you can say, well, that's just, they're just using, they're using them as synonyms, but there is a big difference. And you can see right here, uh, the brotherly love is one Greek word, Philadelphia, which means the love of brothers or brotherly love. It's made up of two Greek words, philos, a phileo or philos, meaning loving friend, friendly, dear, beloved, meaning it's someone you're close to. Uh, and this word refers to a friend, someone who is dearly loved and a prize in a personal way. This person could be a trusted confidant, uh, the person that is held dear in a close bond of personal affection. Uh, philos expresses the, uh, the uh, affection-based, excuse me, experienced-based affection, meaning you have developed a friendship. You've developed some form of friendship that you've come together. You, you have experience with each other. Now, when you talk about a, a marriage, you could say uh, agape, which is a covenant love. 
but that would be marriage in the sense of a covenant. You have a contract. You may not be friends. There is also eros, which would be sensual love. And this, of course, when we talk about love today in, 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 in most cases, in music or whatever, a lot of times uh, we're heading towards this love right here, eros love. In, in marriage, all three of these would be involved, although you could just have agape. If I had a agape relationship with Tony that was arranged by our parents, and it's like we never really became friends, we just had the same bank account, and we never really had any sensual relationships, we would just have a contract. It would be agape. But you see, in a marriage, you're going to have friendship, hopefully, in an American marriage. Hopefully, there's going to be friendship. And, of course, there's going to be sensual love. That's all part of it. In fact, that's coming up here later in these verses. So you're going to have a contract, a marriage license. You're going to have a friendship. You're going to have a relationship together in the sense of you enjoy certain things. That's why in America we get married. We have some kind of friendship. And that's going to lead to some kind of sensual relationship also that is in, in, this, in, in the marriage relationship is appropriate. This right here, the eros, needs to be kept, in the, we're going to see in these verses, kept within the bounds of marriage. That's coming up here. Anyway, we're talking here about the friendship part of that, not, not agape and not, not marriage. But, of course, this could be part of a marriage relationship. Uh, this can, uh, point five, this can be contrast with agape, which is focused on value-driven or decision-based love, such as a contract. So like when you sign a contract, uh, like in a marriage license, that is now agape. You are now in a covenant. It's like no emotion. This is just the agreement. That, that explains so much when you get into the Old Testament, when God keeps talking about he loves Israel, he loves Israel, he loves Israel. That's because of the Mosaic covenant. He has a covenant with Israel. And so he can talk about different levels of the relationship, but it comes down to He's got a, re, a relation with him based in a covenant, and so he loves Israel because of the covenant. Because of what he promised Abraham, because of what he made the covenant with Moses, these things are building on this, I will always be faithful to Israel. Uh, he may have to discipline, but he'll always bring them back. So when you read the Old Testament, uh, and you talk about the word love pops up, sometimes it becomes very confusing, in, in, at least in my American mind, I go right to emotion. God has an, an emotional connection with Israel. He's in love with Israel. Well, no, he made a covenant promise to Abraham. Sometimes Israel's very disappointing. Sometimes he needs to discipline them, but he's got a contract that he is going to fulfill. Now, that can lead to, you know, emotion. It can lead to friendship, uh, brotherly love. But again, that just kind of explains, uh, especially that verse when it says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I mean, you go right away, God is like this emotional balloon, and, you know, he's like, oh, I've got this, I love jacob but oh esau i hated it basically means i have a contract with israel they are in the covenant i have no covenant with esau esau is not my responsibility jacob is israel i love jacob i've hated i never gave them a contract it's it's that it's that simple and a lot of times say well he really loves israel but boy he just doesn't like esau i just i just well you can see him even making promises to esau as far as he's going to become a, a nation, he's going to be a father of kings. And he actually has, protects him as a nation. And that's another whole story. We get into that. But no, no, here's that word, brotherly love. And so he tells them first here in chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue or 
let that love, the, the friendship of brothers. And now brothers, this of course, brother is, Delphus means brother, but it also refers to those who are of the same faith. You have some kind of, it could be a family or it could be a, a philosophy. It could be a religion that you are brothers, uh, you know, in war, your brothers in the faith, your brothers in uh, some other situation. So this is love for the brothers. So this right here is talking about have love for the Christians, uh, the believers. And this is not this is not talking about love. You know, let brotherly love continue. Again, be careful here. This is not saying if you're a Christian, you need to love everybody. That's not what this verse is saying. He's telling them, you're in a group. Your group is being persecuted. You guys stay together and love each other as brothers, as a brotherhood, support each other, be friends with each other. You have experience together, stay together. But that would mean there's others that are on the outside. They are not of the brotherhood. You do not love them like friends. Everybody in the world is not my friend. I mean, it's like, well, that's not very Christian. No, that, that's, that's very elementary even to talk like that because there are some that are brothers. There are some that are not. This is not saying they're supposed to go out and, and, and fight the other people. It doesn't mean they're out to hate the other people. This verse is talking about the focus here is on the believers. Uh, those that are on the outside are the ones that are causing the commotion, that are bringing the persecution you're to love them in the sense you have a responsibility to evangelize them. You're supposed to care about the world, be, care about their eternal fate, uh, try to lead them to Christ, but they are definitely not, in this sense, friends or brothers. They're on the outside. You don't just say, well, I hope they go to hell. You look at them and you have sympathy. They're captives. You want to reach out and bring them into the brotherhood, but you realize they're on the outside. They're not of this, and God treats it the same way. There are those... As Christians, you have become his object of love through Christ. You, have, you are in this covenant. I mean, this whole thing becomes very uh, exciting when you realize that you have been chosen by God, placed in Christ, and you are now in the covenant. You don't need to be worried about what happens if you don't have to worry about it. You are in the fellowship of God, and you are his favorite. He is now working everything to your advantage, and nothing can take you away from that that love, again, love, that emotion, no, that contract, that covenant that is sealed with the blood of Christ, which is the better covenant, it, it can't be broken. It is the eternal blood of Christ that you are sealed with in God. He's got a plan for you, and everything is working to your advantage. So be confident. It's like, well, what happens if he changes his mind? Okay, you, you're, you're getting, he's not, a, he's not a man. He's not going to break up with you. He's not going to find someone else. He's, you're in this covenant. Now, there are those who are outside they have rejected the offer they've rejected they've remained just like jesus they remain under the wrath of god they are in a place that we're still calling them hey there's still time but the clock is going to run out eventually and they will face the wrath of god there is the love of god and there is the wrath of god we are in the love of god not because we're good people well i've earned this i've earned my way in well if that's the case and i'm still alive I could do something stupid and <laughs> mess it up. It's one thing to get a job and sign a contract and have a job and say, hey, welcome, you're, you've got, you're employed. 
well, I'm going to always be, well, yeah, you got to meet, you got to meet these requirements. At some point, you could fail at your job and be released, be fired. That's not salvation in what we're talking about. You are in Christ because of Jesus' work. You're in the body of Christ. You can't fail. God has you. There are those that are on the outside. There is the judgment that is going to come. Uh, but we're still, we're still, there's people are still finding their place. People are still coming to Christ. So, you know, those that are outside today may in the future, in our future, move into Christ and, and receive the same grace that we've received. Nonetheless, uh, this brotherly love is, uh, again, talking about, that's the command, is let brotherly love continue. The idea there that it is taking place, it is happening. Don't, don't let this situation uh, let you betray your brotherly love. Because Jesus says, when persecution comes, a uh, father will betray, uh, how do I say, fa- family will betray each other. How's it go? Son against father, mother against daughter. You know, they'll be betraying each other. There's no loyalty. The pressure causes them to break their loyalty. The pressure of persecution, do not let that break your loyalty to other Christians. Uh, continue to support them. You know, don't throw them under the bus, per se. Okay, chapter 3, verse 2. Now, interesting. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now that word, look at the word hospitality in the Greek. Uh, it says, do not forget to be hospitable. And it's the second word. And it begins like this. P-H-I-L-O. And then the second part of it, make sure I spell it somewhat correctly, is, well, it just comes from the word xenos. There's your two words. Phileo, which means friendship. Um, we translate it love. And before it said brother over here. So it'd be friendship, brother friendship, or brotherly love. This word xenos means stranger. So now it says, uh, it's translated here, hospitality. It is the friendship or love of a stranger. Hospitality is the love of a stranger. That's the word. It's translated here, be hospitable. In other words, there's going to be times where you're going to have to open up to, in a sense, strangers. Uh, now, we're not talking about strangers that are, you know, creeping the streets and are, you know, strange. We're talking about people that are traveling or visiting, uh, that they need a place to stay. See, we have, even when we, me and Tony, when we go visit our kids, uh, we, we, we visit their house, but we always go to a hotel. Now, be, just because... I don't know, it's just, it's, I think it's more fun. We can have fun. We do a couple things together. It's like, okay, we're going home, and then we hook up the next day together and do something again. I just, you know, personally, I just don't like the, you know, in your face four days, and everything changes, and the tension builds. It's just like, it's, I don't know. So, and I, I got a hotel. So I can check into a hotel. Well, Tony tells me where we're staying, and I just carry the bag when she tells, she checks in. Uh, in these days, they didn't have, they had inns, they had, but they were, they were dangerous. They were not the place that you'd want your family staying. And if someone was important to come to town, you definitely wouldn't check them into an inn or hotel. You'd bring them into someone's house. And so what he's saying here is this hospitable is if it's uh, traveling, like they had traveling teachers that would travel from city to city and teach. You can even hear right here at the end of this book, chapter 13, 
the writer is planning on getting Timothy and we're going to come to you, he would have to stay. Someone's going to have to be hospitable. Paul, you can see him writing to uh, uh, Philemon, uh, writing to uh, 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 Colossae, where he's saying, prepare a place where I'm coming, get a place ready for me, saying be hospitable. Now, of course, Paul wasn't a stranger. But sometimes you'd have te- teachers that would be traveling, and they'd be coming in, and you wouldn't necessarily know them. They wouldn't necessarily be your friends, but they're part of the brotherhood. Make sure you're entertaining them. Uh, and this could extend more to how far you're going to push stranger. Is this going to be people that are outside of the group, and you're going to be bringing them in? Uh, that's, you know, that's to be debated. If, you know, it's just the idea of being hospitable and opening your house up. Uh, you can see this in Timothy and Titus when you have a list of elders or pastors. There's a list of things, their qualities that they should have. And in both the lists, hospitality, being hospitable, being a friend to strangers, which means welcoming them into your home, has to be one of the character traits of a, a pastor, of a leader, of an elder of the church. You're going to have to be hospitable. And it would, you can even consider it a gift within the church of being, some people have a tendency to be more hospitable. Some people have a tendency to be more merciful. Everyone should be teaching. Some have a tendency to be more teaching. This is, this is a gift also within the church. But nonetheless, interesting, chapter 13, verse 1, uh, brotherly love, those that you've got a friendship with, this now is the same thing, same friendship but now with strangers someone that is in a sense you don't have experience with uh, but yet they are they are of the same faith make sure you welcome them in and bring them in now this has a limit now listen watch this see even here there's a border even here there's a border now you don't see it in the text but you see it in the dadachi which is the teaching the dadachi means the teaching of of the apostles it, it's a late first century early second century document that was a collection of the things the apostles supposedly taught uh and in the didache it, it if nothing else it captures an attitude of what the church was like i'll say between 90 and 130 a.d and what was what was being taught it's not scripture but it comes right on the tails of scripture as the scripture being closed it kind of some writings and in there the didache you can see point three on page two it taught, and this is a, a fun, there's many things that are fun to read, uh, taught to entertain, meaning be hospitable, but if a person stayed more than one night, maybe two at the most, they were false teachers. Now you can see this in 2nd and 3rd John, where John's talking about sending teachers, and he's sending the teacher, the church was meeting this person's house, and he'd send a teacher there to kind of, they're traveling, kind of keeping everybody on the same page. Because John couldn't travel everywhere, but he was one of the la- he was the last living apostle. But he trained men to continue the ministry and keep his teaching going and and keep th- coming in and check. Like Paul checked with the churches, he traveled around. One of the things he mentioned in Second Corinthians is his constant fear. He'd say, stay awake at night, worrying about the church. I mean, he'd say, well, that doesn't sound like very faithful. But Paul's making a point. I'm under stress too, and I'm under stress that. I'm constantly worried about, I start a church, say, okay, yeah, he's got this, okay, I'll try to get back, and he'd travel, and he didn't have email, had letter, but had to be carried back and forth with other people, and then he'd wonder, how are they doing, or he'd get a letter, oh boy, so-and-so's trying to take over, so-and-so's causing trouble, and he'd try to resolve that, but from a distance, so he's constantly worried, so John would have teachers, like others, that would travel around, in the second and third John, there was someone that had taken over the church that John had established, and would not let John's teachers come in. 
So they, when they would come, they'd need a place to stay. That's just the idea that there's traveling teachers. In the Dadachi, somewhere at the end of the first century, early second century, they had to make a rule. And the rule in this Dadachi, now again, it's not scripture, but it gives you an insight into what was going on in the church at that time. If someone, if a, if, if a, if a guest comes, and you're going to be hospitable, and they're going to come and they're going to teach in your church, in your congregation, in your home. They can stay one night. Take care of them. Treat them well. Be hospitable. Maybe two nights. I mean, sometimes two nights. Maybe, I don't know, maybe had a great service, had a great, had some questions. Maybe the weather got bad. You know, whatever this is. Maybe two nights. But if they stay any longer, they are a false teacher. It was that simple. If, if you're there and you're burdening the people by the third day, it's like, okay, yeah, no. And you, what you're do, you, after one day, they'd stay, you'd entertain them, and then you'd provide them a lunch and enough food to get to the next destination. Here's, here's a lunch. How much you think you're going to need? Here's some cash, and thank you. We'll see you next time around. But if they're staying here by the third, fourth, fifth day, if they're going to spend a month, they're going to move into the community, and I'll just have, the church can just finance me. You, I, I tell you what, I will just be the professional pastor of your church. It's like, what? It's like, now, if you're, here, if you're here on Wednesday morning, you're never coming back again. It's like, you've got today and maybe tomorrow, and uh, I'm giving you a sandwich. I mean, that's the Dadachi. Now, just keep that in mind. Uh, when it says, be hospitable, it doesn't mean, what? You, you, you're moving in. It's like, no, you're not. And which, again, you can just uh, yeah, do what you want to with that information and balance me out with you got some other insight, uh, other information. But the idea was, even within there, is the ideal of property ownership, of property responsibility. I can share, but I can also put limits on it. And that is the godly way. That is the way the Bible is written. That's the way Jesus told parables. That's the way the church was set up. It involved private property. It revolved respon- involved responsibility. And it involved you being able to set limits on what you gave and, and, and what was, was uh, considered uh, a- available to the public. So anyway, that's just interesting. But this verse is not teaching you to be hard-hearted. It's saying be hospitable. And then you've got that meaning be friendly to strangers, meaning in this case, you know, take care of them. Uh, for thereby, this is an interesting verse, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And that, again, point two, hospitality in the Middle East, in the Greek and the Roman world, was of a great virtue, mainly because there was no other place to go. You couldn't just go down to an inn. I mean, we have, a, in a sense, we almost have a very cold, closed culture. I mean, you know, I, I get in my own vehicle, I roll up the windows, turn up the music, and I drive to work by all the other people. And if I see someone staring at me, it's like... What, what, what's wrong, you know? I, I expect complete privacy even on the interstate. I, I, my window's rolled up, my music's playing. It's like, don't be looking in my windows. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, that we have, in a sense, a cold culture. Uh, but in the Middle East, you know, if someone's, you know, even if someone's broke down the side of the road, if someone's broke down on the side of the road, do you stop? If someone's broke down the side of the interstate, uh, you know, I, I, I just... Look, see, make sure they got a cell phone. It looks like they're on the phone. I'll be, you know, it's like you don't have a bunch of people stopping and helping. It's a different situation. Uh, and that's, th- that can be justified or attacked either way. Nonetheless, in this culture, people went out of their way. It was a sign of valor. It was a sign of, 
of great character to be hospitable. And you can see some story, and when you read some stories in the Bible, people are doing certain things, opening their homes up, being gracious in extreme ways where it's kind of like, what is wrong? Well, this is a huge honor for them. And you got examples. Uh, the greatest example, of course, is Abraham when he sees the Lord and two men are with him, and these, it appears as three men approaching him, and we went through that story. And he, he has them sit down, and he went out of his way. This is, this is Abraham, who's, who's like the sheik. He's like in charge of all this property, all these people. He goes out of, invites them in. It was an honor to have them stay. He went out and slaughtered an animal. They needed some bread. I mean, it took them how many hours to get ready to feed them. And then they asked him, please stay, stay longer. We wanted to have you to stay longer. If you could just stay longer, it was an honor for him. So hospitality was a very big deal in this culture, I mean, in the Middle East, throughout the ages. Uh, probably different than it is in our culture, at least in, in my attitude, at least is. Uh, and again, hospitality was something that the church was uh, expected to have point four with their leadership. Uh, and again, I would, I would say Tony has the gift of hospitality that she opens her home up and she doesn't just unlock the door, but she, I mean, it, she's like vacuuming and cleaning and I mean, it's like, it's like she, so anyway, recognize something. Galen so much doesn't. It's like, that, yeah, I, yeah, you can stay for Bible study, but then go. Yeah. <laughs> Tony would like to have snacks and serve food and stuff. All right. Remember when we used to have Bible study a long time ago? Anybody here? Long, we, like 20 years ago? We started here like 20 years ago, and Tony would have snacks and stuff. And that was dangerous. People stay until like 11 o'clock at night sometimes. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. But we were younger. We were younger then. Okay, that's enough of that, I think. Oh, I was just going to say, the entertained angels unaware. That's, that's a strange verse because like it must be referring to the fact like Abraham saw these people and he served them, and they ended up being angels. And so that's a kind of a, one of those verses that's it's i don't know it's got a side to it that's are there angels traveling you know you got a practicality of it where people are coming as as teachers or traveling but now you've got things here where they're just strangers that are traveling and you're inviting them in and they're actually an angel and this goes into the story like in acts where barnabas and paul at lystra when they came in and they healed somebody they thought Barnabas was Zeus, and uh, Paul was, was it Mercury? They thought they were the two gods, because there's a, a poem, a Greek poem, that the gods wanted to find out how kind the people were, or something like this. It's, it's still in existence. And they, they disguised themselves as an old man and an old woman, or something like this. And they went in several houses, rejected them, and finally one house welcomed them in and took care of them. Well, then they revealed that they were really the gods, Zeus and and Hermes, was it Hermes? Maybe it was. Uh, yeah, Hermes, I think. Uh, anyway, when they saw Paul heal the man at Lystra, they says, these are the gods have come to us. And they identified one as uh, Zeus and one as Hermes, and they, they honored them. And they said, no, 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 no. And they, they started bringing them offerings and flowers and brought a sacrifice out to them. And they had to convince the people that they were not, they weren't the gods. Because they thought it was a fulfillment of that poem. So kind of familiar to us. Uh, the story is they went on and explained Christ to them. And then the Jews from another town came and reported them. And then they stoned, them to stoned Paul to death. So they, or they started the story off where they're going to be offering him sacrifices. The story ends with Paul getting stoned to death by the same people that are going to offer him sacrifices. Okay, chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since they 
since you are also in the body. So here we have people in prison. Now, first of all, the idea of, of prison ministry, I, that's going to be important. I think that's important today. But once again, and you decide, uh, this is not talking about a prison ministry. A prison ministry would be more like evangelism. You're going to go into the prison and evangelize. Or if there's believers in prison, you're going to go in and strengthen the believers in prison like a prison ministry. This is talking in the context of people that are in your community, in this case, in Jerusalem, that have been arrested for being uh, cultural criminals. Uh, they've been canceled. They've been, they've been arrested and put in. We talk about it. We talk, oh, persecution's coming, persecution. These guys were in, they had put people in prison because of their faith. Now, we talk about it. And again, it's interesting, and I always hope when, if persecution comes, that I get to be persecuted because of uh, my faith in Jesus. Or I get persecuted because of, I believe the Bible is the word of God. But it's probably going to come on some tributary coming off of that. Because I believe Jesus is Lord and the word of God is absolutely true. Some tributary down here, some minor cultural infraction. I'm going to say, well, now, now that's not, that, 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 that doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up with my faith. It doesn't line up with reality. It doesn't line up with the word of God. And Jesus Christ, the creator, didn't create it that way. And so I'm not going to go down for, or we're not going to go down for some major theological theme. It's going to be some, you know, cultural misstep miscue mispronoun that's like what it's like no it's like burn me on an issue don't burn me on a pronoun you know and i think that's kind of what this is talking about here is people that had they took a stand for christ and as it had gone on it had been become you know they ended up in prison and again you'd like to in, in this case it might be more directly because of jesus christ because jesus christ was a historical figure in their culture and he had been crucified by them but nonetheless uh, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them because you are supposedly if they're in prison because of their faith you are of the same faith you in a sense are represented by them you could be there tomorrow it's like so consider uh, them as yourself and the prisons were different in those times as you probably know um I put point A, prisons were not designed for living and did not provide the basic needs of the prisoners as we are familiar with here in the West. Like, people can have a life sentence. Uh, there was, people were put in prison uh, in these days to ha hear their case. They were locked up, and then they were held there to hear the case. They were not necessarily put in, like, life in prison where they're going to serve their time, and then there's a, a, a room or a cell and mattress, uh, you, know, for, you know, provisions, you know, whatever is provided. Uh, they were put in some kind of a, a holding center until their trial, like you can see Paul, and they weren't provided for. The only way they were provided for is if someone came and brought them stuff. Uh, but by bringing them stuff, you're, in a sense, siding with them. And it would be a tendency if someone's arrested and put in prison, it's kind of like, whoa, don't go to that part of the neighborhood. Especially don't bring them daily supplies. Because now it's like, why are you doing this? You're going to end up in the same place. That's why it's amazing in 2 Timothy, when Timothy uh, warns, or Paul warns Timothy about certain people, he also uh, says certain of his followers or his teachers that he'd sent out had deserted him but yet no one in Rome came to support him, but he, he blamed the people that had deserted and gone off to the world. They forsook the faith. He kind of blamed them.
But those in Rome, when they didn't come support him, he says, uh, he said, do not blame them. He said, I do not hold them accountable because it was a time of persecution. I mean, they would they'd be risking their life to come visit Paul in prison. He says, everyone's deserted me, but don't let it be held against them because they're, they're afraid. I mean, Nero is killing. He's burning people on sticks. If they come and say, Paul, are you okay? It's like, well, they're next on the stick. But then within that, amazingly, he, he's writing Timothy and says, but come to me. It's like, no, nah, I don't blame these people. They're, they're too afraid. I, wouldn't, I don't blame them all. But, but hey, Tim, uh, bring me my coat, would you? I'll be, it's like, uh, what? And so, and now if you want to make the connection, this is not absolute. This book ends up, Hebrews ends up with Timothy being in prison. And it could be so that Paul, he came to visit Paul, brought him his coat, Paul's executed, and Timothy's put in prison. But there's no, you know, he's held there for, this is, this is hypothetical, and it'll all be about the right timing, and then he's then released again. That's, that's one way of looking at it if you move some dates around. Nonetheless, this is talking about visiting people that are in prison or people that are persecuted, which could be, like we're looking at 63 AD, this could be something that we're, we're, we're moving towards. We, we don't know. I mean, we... We are in a situation where we, we talk about it and we got certain people that are in that kind of a position, but it could become something that becomes very pertinent for our, our own culture. Uh, they'd have to supply their food. They got, talks about Paul being in prison. Luke was with him. Uh, also, besides that, it says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. But also, here's a second one, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, that body would probably be, it would seem like it's talking about in the group, you're part of their suffering. Uh, but now that word, you got those in prison and those mistreated. If you flip over the page, uh, the word mistreated, you can see the Hebrew or the Greek there. I'll, for your entertainment pleasure, I'll try to pronounce it. Kakuchomenon. It means to be ill-treated and is used to say treat evilly or to hurt or to torment. So those are in prison but also those who are cruelly treated, they're mistreated, they're tormented, maybe harassed. We might say the words like bullied, canceled, oppressed. So there's those that are in prison, but there's those that are being bullied by the culture. They're being canceled by the culture. They're being mistreated. Uh, consider them also. So uh, there's these groups. They almost got, you've got the free Christians. You've got those that are in some form of canceled mistreated oppressed and then you got those that are actually in prison and the writer is telling them in these days remember those in prison remember those that are mistreated because you're all part of it they just haven't got to you yet we need to keep spreading this message so that's again uh that value then chapter 13 verse 4 so far what we've said we've mentioned uh love for the brotherhood uh love for strangers or be hospitable persecuted believers in prison and those are mistreated remember them support them and now in the midst of all of this uh chapter 13 verse 4 let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for god will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers and so what we have here is we've got two things i would think um i'm sorry about my spelling one thing I wish, I wish I was smarter and a better speller and understood English. Um, and then uh, uh, immoral. Uh, let marriage be honored by all. And that, that phrase right there, uh, be held in honor among all. If you look in the Greek where it says among all, it's, it's 
in all. It's written N like this, and then pasin, N pasin, it means in all. And then that's translated in the um, English standard, let it be honored among all. And so, first of all, what is all? We could say, first of all, in God's view, marriage should be honored by all. It's an institution given to mankind, so all mankind honors marriage. Meaning every culture throughout time, marriage is the foundation of that. Amazing. It's not, not, there aren't cultures that are built without marriage. I mean, every culture that ha- takes roots and grows has marriage. As, as they grow and de- they begin declining, this starts to be deconstructed and then they collapse. So marriage is, so in a sense, that's all. I don't think that's what they're talking about here. It's saying in your Christian group, among you, you should, among all, all the believers again, because he's not writing a letter. He's, this is not an being letter, apologetic letter being written to the Roman world. Like he's not teaching the Roman world. He's encouraging the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem who are opposing, trying not to be pulled back into the law of Moses. So, hey, again, he's talking to the church. At this time in their situation, let marriage be honored by all, uh, among all. Now, even in all, that doesn't say among all. That's a good translation, among all. But in could mean situations. In all, in all people, all, uh, all groups, but here in, in all situations, because ascetics was moving through. Paul even, taught, Paul even warns about it in 2 Timothy. There are those that are going to arrive and follow t- doctrines of demons even and, and, and resist uh, eating certain foods and abstaining from marriage. These are doctrines of demons. Paul writes that before he was executed. And this is right around that time. And this all situations, ascetics, and you can see this very clearly in the early church, which is kind of sad. Because all of a sudden, sex, or the marriage bed, sexual intercourse, became taboo. It became evil. It became a sign of weakness. It became part of the flesh. It became something to abstain from. Now, Paul's going to make it very clear, or the writer here, and Paul also, he's going to make it very clear, let the marriage bed remain undefiled, and let marriage remain, be honored by all. Meaning, in all situations, in the in marriage the marriage bed is undefiled i mean it's like there's you can't go there and say well that's wrong that's immoral that's you know of the flesh it's like in marriage that's what it's designed for but outside of marriage that is where you draw the boundary and i mean this is not like oh this is well i guess maybe in our culture it is radical information um, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and that could mean all situations in the sense of those ascetics that are trying to bring marriage down or sex down to the level of being a sinful behavior. It's like, no, if you're an ascetic and you're into fasting and praying and setting yourself apart from God, you cannot take sexual relations in marriage and say, ah, that's wrong, if that makes sense. And you say, well, who would do that? I mean, that, that happens. We, it's happened in church history. We've known some couples that were in that kind of a situation where it's like, well, no, no, sex is, is wrong even in marriage, if you can believe that. Yes, I've seen that. Um, but that, that's saying it, it should be honored. The marriage should be honored among all uh, in, in the church and maybe even all, in all situations it should be honored. And let the marriage bed be, be, be undefiled. Uh, and that is an euphemism. You can see point three. The marriage bed is an 
euphemism for sexual intercourse. Point A, this is very basic, sex in marriage is not to be discounted, discouraged, looked down upon. Sex in marriage is pure. Sex in marriage is pure. It is undefiled. It's, it's, it's perfect. But the very next line, sex in marriage is to stay within the limits of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is immoral. As surely as sex within marriage is pure, sex outside of marriage is immoral. This my own, not my words, watch. And let the mar- ba- marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. It's like, there it is. It's like, now, that would could be in time, and in eternity, in time, there could be some kind of punishment that is a repercussion of that sexual sin. In eternity, uh, that's not going to be if we believe everything we talk about, like we are in the covenant, it's the blood of Jesus, it's, a, it's an eternal covenant, we're saved, we're in Christ. That, that sexual sin would not be, in a sense, uh, nullifying this, but it would be a loss of rewards. You would suffer some kind of loss. Suffer a loss in time, suffer some kind of loss in eternity although as you go through the new testament many times when sexual immorality is mentioned it is always associated with the unbeliever again sexual immorality may be a sign that the person really hasn't entered into this this covenant they're out here dancing in some religious scheme they think they're saved by works whatever and they think they're in this but they're not they're in some kind of sexual immorality but it is possible to be a you know again someone would argue with this it is possible to be a christian and and to sin i mean it it that's throughout the bible and and so that would result in God will judge the uh, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous, uh, and that would be in time, or it could be in eternity. And it's not going to be loss of salvation if you have salvation. It would be loss of rewards and opportunities that you squandered. So, wait, again, in this time of sixty-three AD, as he's closing this book down, he brings up marriage is important. It's the institution has continued to be honored, and make sure you do not become sexually immoral. Uh, and that could be a tendency as people drift from the truth, they drift into false religion. They, that, in fact, it's going to become, you can see as we go, coming up here next week, it's going to say, avoid all kinds of strange teachings. And some of the strange teachings that are coming out, we, you can tap into it in Revelation, the Nicolaitans and things like this. Uh, Gala- uh, Revelation, when it talks about the seven churches, it's talking about some that are actually promoting sexual sin within the church. Uh, the antinomians and the ideal of you're so free that even, even Gnosticism got into this. Uh, well, no, 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 I'd be wrong. The antinomians and the idea that you're so free and your, your, your spirit is so set free. Nicolaitans got into this, apparently. You're so free in Christ that nothing you do in the flesh can ever affect anything spiritually. Meaning, you can, you in a sense, demonstrate your, your spiritual freedom by being totally immoral. It's like, look, even the blood, look how glory. That's where you wonder what Paul writes. He says, are we saying that, that uh, more grace, the more sin? I mean, the more you sin, the more grace you get. He says, no, he says, absolutely, that's not the point. The point of this is not you're saved, so you can just keep on sinning, and the more you sin, the more grace is applied. So you're really doing God a favor by just 
indulging in all this immorality. He goes, look how much grace he's got to pour out. Look, you still made it, and you're totally immoral. Wow, what an honor to Jesus. Like Paul says, no, that's not the message. But that did get, get some ground and some traction. And so this is, again, something that's going to be uh, building as we go out of the 60 ADs. That's 13, verse 4, 13, chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And often following on the footsteps of sexual sins is going to be money. In, in, in several verses in the New Testament, they warn about the, the selfish person who would be immoral is going to be given to sex and given to, you know, again, everyone needs money. You need to make money. If you're a money maker, if you're in business, that's fine. Just like if you're married and having sexual intercourse, you're fine. You see, it's like, so sex is bad and money is bad. Well, no, if you're married, that's part of your lifestyle. If you're in business, you got to be making money. That's, I mean, we need, we all have a job and we've got to be responsible for ourselves. So these are, but the ideal here is being covetous. This is outside of marriage and this is outside of your needs. This is out of, you're just lusting after it. And your goal is no longer to grow in Christ and pursue Christ and live a life that God's called you to, but you have the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So this is talking two things. The love of money would be something to avoid. And the alternative to the love of money is to be content with what you have. Notice right here, again, you have something. You have got a job. You bought a house. You have property. You can let someone use it. You can be hospitable because you have something. But be content. This is, this is enough. Yes. The love of money is you're not, you're not going to be content. You're going to not be content with what you have. You're going to want more and more and more. And you're going to lose this contentment. And you're going to make some kind of greed. Just like a person who is into sexual sin is going to destroy themselves. A person that's in love with money, they can't be content with what they have. They want more and more and more. What are you going to do with more? If that is your goal, you're going to have a problem. So he's warning them of that situation there. And again, that often follows you know, sexual sins, the love of money. And be content with what you have. And here's, he gives you a couple verses here as I close this down today. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you're in this covenant and you're following God, he knows where you're at. And he, you've got what you have. You've been provided for. Or he's giving you means to have provisions. Learn to be content. Tony uses this. He talks about joy. This is, again, content is a good word. Uh, but joy. Choose joy. That's, what, you know, that's, the, that's Tony's mantra. Uh, to me and the kids, uh, and I think it's good because it's ideal of if you if you can choose joy, be content with what you have. Also, now the spirit of God can start functioning. Relax, you, you have what you need. And again, notice you have something. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a job, a house, property, you know, a nice car, a car that runs. I mean, who? I mean, I got a car, but it doesn't run. Well, you're more saintly. It was like you need a car that runs. You need it to move, uh, not an electric car. Um, uh, and then it goes on again. First Timothy six six contentment with First Timothy. I could go do this old message here. In First Timothy six, he starts talking about people that are are in the ministry, and they start pers- they think godliness is a way of gaining finances. Meaning, the more godly you are, you're going to get more money. And so they begin to pursue money, and they confuse godliness and money, and they be- create all kinds of problems for themselves 
but godliness with contentment, he says, right again, 1 Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. If, if a person, if a Christian can learn to be content with what they have, you have got the greatest gain much more than the person that is never content and they just keep digging holes for themselves and problems for themselves. Uh, I mean, go back, just like the person that in marriage can be content with their marriage relationship instead of always going out and pursuing more and more and more, you're going to destroy yourself sexually going outside of marriage, just like you're going to destroy yourself. You're not being content with your, your, your finances, your home, what you have, what you're working for. You're going more and more and more. You're going to destroy yourself in one of those ways. Contentment is very important. That's one of his themes. And he ends with chapter, or I end today with, with his chapter 13, verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that ties us all together because they're in a place where they're facing persecution love the brotherhood, love the stranger, go ahead and visit the prison, support those that are in prison, those that are being canceled, support them. Do not get caught up. Make sure you honor marriage. Don't get caught up in sexual immorality. Do not get caught up in love of money. Be content with what you have because your God knows where you're at. He is your helper. You do not need to fear because what, what can man do to you? What, what, what can these people do to you? They're putting you in prison. They're causing oppression. They're can't, what, what can they do to you? You keep doing what God's called you to do if it is the institution of marriage, if it's being content with what you have, if it's supporting those that are being oppressed themselves. Be content with what you have. God knows where you're at. Man cannot stop. This is good. Man cannot stop you. You're in this power dinosphere of the salvation that God's called you to. The minute you start wishing you had more money, the minute you start becoming sexual immoral, the minute you start abandoning those who are already being persecuted, the minute you stop reaching out and loving the brotherhood and opening your house up to strangers and supporting these things, now you've lost the power. Now you've, you're, you're breaking, in a sense, fellowship with the Spirit. Now you're in the flesh, and now you're going to get rolled by men. You stay over here, keep doing things in the Spirit of God. Men will attack you. They may look like they're making progress and, and destroying you, but you're in this power dinosphere with God and uh, his salvation is going to continue to work out his plan in your life. So do not fear what man does to you. And so that kind of fits into what is being said in the book. We'll pick this up next week and continue through chapter 13 as we close down the book of Hebrews. Thank you for being here. I'll pray, and we will be done. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that we ourselves would take these characteristics and, and pursue them in our own lives that we'd continue to trust you and not worry about the situations that we'd learn to be content, that we'd be diligent in our efforts, diligent in our work, diligent in our marriages, but also, Father, at the same time, be content with what we have, that we may allow that, that, that power dinosaur that you've called us to to manifest in our own lives as we continue to pursue you, minister to the world, and not worry about what the world will do to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time.